0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Indigenous Approach. I'm Major Dan Lassard, the host of this podcast episode. Today, we're finishing the conversation with John Stryker Meyer, a.k.a. Tilt, a Green Beret veteran and member of the iconic macv SOG organization from the Vietnam War. If you missed part one, I recommend pausing here, listening to that episode first. Now, let's get to the final part of our conversation. So, sir, uh Kind of jump to like one of my one of my last questions there. So kind of maybe right. jump back a little bit here. Yeah, you know we talk about soft often special operations forces often operating tactically, right? Very yeah. tactically, but operational strategic effects, right? So some of the things y'all were doing now on the ground, you talked to about your spike teams. You know, how did you see that playing out? Like some of the things that y'all were doing there. Obviously, you, I mean, you're talking about patrolling and having, you know, tactical engagements with folks. But what are some of the operational strategic effects that you all had? I think one of the most
1: obvious strategical effects was out of FOB2, Contum, they ran what they call slam operations, which were they would put in a, put in a hatchet force, And it would be maybe a company or at least a platoon up to a company would go in to the Ho Chi Minh Trail and they'd block it. They'd go in with heavy weapons, mortars, and then it would back up the trail, and then the air force could come in and just blow up all the mm-hmm. trucking and any of the as they spread out. The stuff's coming south; it's getting stacked up. They did three of those out of Khantoum. and those were major successes. And in our case, although we never heard about it directly, like our wiretaps, and we put in the air force sensors. And the sensors would be alongside of a road or a major trail. And the ones we inserted were th- in three-part. They had a major unit, and then there was two coaxial cables that went out. We buried everything so it would be just a little antenna that could tell what was going down the road, whether it was humans, animals, tanks, trucks.
0: And, it'd and feed it up to the Air Force yeah.
1: planes. And then we had, you know there's like today, there's a 24-hour airborne command center. That's that's up there, and how they got it, how often they would come in and record it, we never knew anything about. Our job was to get them in. They worked the West, so we never are told how successful they were. But the CIA told us like, on our wiretaps, she said, if you don't hear anything on the, on the phone line, tap it because the North Vietnamese phones, at least the ones we were tapping, when they put it in the cradle, it was still alive. So we recorded, and then the CIA would amplify it a hundred times, and they said they got great intel off of that. In 1970, had a truly classic SOG mission where, after Premier Sihanouk had left Cambodia, the North Vietnamese pushed very hard to get into Cambodia to take over as much as they could. And the southern part of Laos, further west from our area of operations, the CIA had a force of 5,000 men that was engaged by a larger force of North Vietnamese because this was part of their push to go into Cambodia. They were getting hammered. They said, we need SOG to take the pressure off of us. So Khantum had a B company, Hatchet Force, 120 indigenous troops and 16 Green Berets. It was past our area of operations. It was so far that they had to use Marine Corps CH-53 Deltas. Of course, you could take more people, load them up, took them out, and on this mission, when the second and third helicopter went in, they took gunfire from the enemy. And the third helicopter, there were two or three indigenous troops were wounded. I mean, you never had troops wounded on an insertion. But for this mission, the mission was to get in, take the pressure off the CIA. So the helicopters returned with the wounded on it, and they they went into the mission. So instead of staying static in one position, Gene McCarley was, Captain Gene McCarley was the uh, team leader on that. They went in and moved all day, and then they would take a break, eat, and then move at night. The first day, when they got off the LZ, within two or three hours, they came to a major supply center. They got supplies. I don't know if it was a headquarters or not, but they had intelligence reports, and they took stuff from there. And while they were there, the phone rang, and one of the Green Berets picked us. Hello, Fifth Special Forces Group. May we help you? <laughs> 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 one of those little moments of time. Reaction was yeah, and but they moved day and night. And that first night, the uh, the command center was hit with an RPG, but wounded several of the men. And we had one medic, Gary Mike Rose, who was the medic on that case. And the RPG went past all the men, hit a tree, and exploded. So the shrapnel came backwards, cut through his jungle boot, severely wounded his foot, damaged his hand to the point where he still can't use his left hand all the way from those injuries. And some of the other team members, two of the indigenous people were severely wounded. So Mike passed them all up. They moved that night. And then the two severely wounded indigenous, they used their uh, ponchos and improvised Mm -hmm. to carry them. And they moved all night. The next day, they kept moving. But they kept having enemy contact. But they couldn't figure, the NVA couldn't quite figure out where they were. But they kept moving, and they were drawing more and more resources away from the CIA. So by day four, they had done the mission. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, they came across another major cache. Again, they took more intelligence reports out, packed up their backpacks. And then Covey, the fact, told them, hey, there's a major storm front coming in. And I can see hundreds, if not thousands of NVA coming your way. You're going to be in heavy contact soon. Well, they made contact. They had the first few waves. Covey had to leave, and the team on the ground was close to being overrun with the wave attacks. Gene was able to get a hold of an A-1 Sky Raider pilot by the name of Tom Stump. Tom somehow made contact with Gene. He broke through. They had a lot of clouds. He broke through the clouds, flew over the team, came back, broke through the clouds again, made gun runs that saved that team's life, literally the men on that team. So when they finally got to the LZ, the first CH-53 Delta came in, lifted off a lot of the, the team, one third of the team. Second one came in, now it's more enemy gunfire. Lifted off, the third one comes in, and it got hammered, going in, picking up Rose, Gene McCarley. Before the third one came in, the A-1s made gun runs and a bombing run and CBU run with gas, CS. It disoriented the NVA enough. They could get on the helicopter. And Gene said that he, I think Mike were the last couple of men. When they were getting on that tail, you know how the tail goes down at CH-53? They're going up. They turned around. Here's the NVA right there. They could have thrown hand grenades in, but they're so disoriented, they just blew them back into the jungle, back into the gas smoke. They take off. As they're taking off, The Marine door gunner gets shot in the neck. His blood is spurting up, and the microphone stays open so the pilot can hear this guy gurgling away, but he can't talk to anybody because of the gurgle. Mike goes over, patches up his neck, and that young Marine was panicked. And Mike said to him, settle down. If you're going to die, you would have been dead by now. I'm going to save your ass, so sit down and shut up. And the kid came around. Mike (laughs) saved his life. So as they're taking off, they got hit again, and they lost one engine. So the pilot flew over two mountain ridges. After going over to the next mountain ridge, he lost a second engine. And then he had to crash land.
0: Wow.
1: And they, they survived it. Now, the impact on that crash landing was so severe that Gene McCarley crushed his teeth. And it took him three years to go back to repair all the damage from that day. But he... Mike Rose and a couple of other members all got ejected from the helicopter, but they got picked up, came back. They lost one man who was killed on the ground. And when Gene was there on that last helicopter, he had an indigenous troop next to him who was killed in action right there, and they brought his body back too. And Mike Rose received the Medal of Honor from President Trump, October 23rd, 2017, from that mission. And the CIA... They helped to save them, but that unorthodox method—that's one of the major missions that was run.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like you said, I mean, large effects, right? From oh, small yeah. footprints, because you know uh, we talked about being the nation's premier partnership force. What we really bring is you're able to have a couple of American Green Berets with a large force of indigenous, you know, partners, and be able to do things like call in airstrikes and. You know, and really have big effects on.
1: And stand up against charging troops. I yeah. mean, wave attack after wave attack. And we had so many teams that, that were able to survive that, or we lost people to it. But the, uh, at least in my case and a lot of the other recon teams, our indigenous troops were just amazing. And whatever we asked them to do, they did it. Now, we always cross trained them. You no, know, Sal would cross train other team members, he looked for the sharpest guy. To talk about how to do the wiretap, so he trained them how to do a wiretap, which would be, in our case, you climb up a pole or a tree where the wires are, tap into it on the backside, and then cover the wire with mud so if anybody walked by, they wouldn't see it, mm-hmm. and then be able to pull it down. And then we trained heavily for the claim wars, the ambush, how to put it out. We trained heavily for you know immediate action drills, and then also we would teach them how to talk on the radio. We looked for a couple of English speakers, mm-hmm. and we always made sure that if HEP wasn't there, another Vietnamese who could at least get on the radio and say, you know, whoever's down is down. My name is this name. I need an airstrike here, and tell them how to do airstrikes. You know, and then we also trained them in first aid, basic first aid to have a medic on the team. We never had a Green Beret medic, because right. they're the best in the world. They still are. They're just amazing. The Deltas
0: are just amazing
1: men. So that's some of the cross-training we did with them. So they're more than just a trigger puller, you know? Right.
0: I'm guessing you talk about how much you kind of trained and taught them. I'm guessing they kind of taught you a little bit too.
1: Yeah, they did. And, you know, in a way, like it's funny, you know, now they say, well, did you ever run point? I said, hell no. Why am I at six foot two? Me and my big gringo go were walking down through the jungle when I got little people. They did it better than me. We never got bit by snakes. I mean, they would point them out. We're going through. Here's a pit viper. Here's a crete or whatever these snakes were all the time. Mm. And they knew we were going. And with Sal, once we were on the ground, we had the map. We had the mission plan down. I say, I turn it over to him. He's running point. I make sure. But I never had to worry about Sal. And he had his people trained. They're like Hung and Kwong and Fuck. He eventually became one of our appointment. He was really good. You know, We stayed off the trails, but that's part of our working with our local people. And then even our A-camps, it, you know, when they would go into a village, they would do basic stuff, which would be, for example, here's a stream of water running through your village. You should have your your restroom facilities south of your village, mm-hmm. not north of it, so you you put waste into your stream. Basic things, and of course, our Green Beret medics are just—you know—they're the ones that develop the. uh, They win the hearts and minds of the villages when they go in. Right, that's their first step.
0: Yeah. So, a couple other things I'd like to talk about we, it's not just special forces as you might imagine the name oh yeah right no. so special forces psychological I did a little operations. background check
1: I'm at the speed now
0: okay, okay how
1: just how big this is it's amazing yeah, it's this actually, command it's one of
0: the biggest, the biggest. elements Yeah, 23,000 people 11 subordinate 06 commands so but special forces psychological operations civil affairs and special operations right. it. so I mentioned psychological operations and I think that maybe is part of kind of the effect of SOG too right on, on the NVA sure you mentioned a little bit about the eldest son program Maybe give a little bit about what that was and just other kind of psyop aspects of kind of what y'all were doing.
1: Yeah. And that with the eldest son, we carried enemy ammunition, AK-47 rounds, mortar rounds that they used. And they were rigged to explode when they used them. That way we wanted to instill in them concern about their own weapons and ammunition. So if we come to an enemy cache, if we didn't blow it up, if it was just a small one, We'd insert some of our rounds there so that when they use it, and eventually we got photographs back of AKs that had blown up in people's faces or or dead NVA soldiers that died from that. I always carried the AK-47 rounds. And where we came to sometimes we just drop it on the trail, make it look like somebody had dropped it. They picked it up because they were always scarce on ammo. So we helped they pick it up, put it in their cache. We carried the um, 81 or the 82-millimeter rounds for the NVA. Sometimes we carry motor rounds. But again, an Elder son mission took on a very deadly impact for us. November 30th, 1968, we had a King Bee that was flying out. We had uh, six or seven Green Berets on it. And it was strictly a, an Elder son mission. From an intel report, they picked an area where they knew it was a cachet. They flew out and they're in route to that target. They got hit by anti-aircraft fire. And the, the King Bee went down and crashed and killed everybody, including the crew. So that day is one of our deadliest days, you know. And they're just doing an eldest son mission. So you never know when things are going to get turned around. One of our best majors, Major Cuomo, they had picked up an nba round. I think it was a rocket of some sort. They picked it up and they're going to fly it back to Saigon. When they're flying back, the thing exploded midair. Mm-hmm. Now, was it because of one of those firing mechanisms that goes off with different air pressures? We don't know. But here we lost a major. Major, major, who was really highly respected, just a combat troop that was just a, a stud, but to lose a man that way.
0: So eldest sons, it really only takes a couple of rounds, right, to work, right? Because then the word spreads. You know, that's one of the his kind of historic and they also did leaf elements. drops.
1: They would do leaflet mm-hmm. drops, and sometimes I'm told, I don't recall seeing this myself, but they would
0: have letters that were written
1: from perspective of an NVA soldier. I've been fighting this war for so long. I miss my mother, and you know the Americans. And the South Vietnamese have inflicted great harm. I came down with 120 men. I'm amongst the last three that are still alive. And I got shrapnel wounds, something like that, which have a, they had
0: hoped would have a psychological impact.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm told they did that. Now, I didn't do that personally, but I heard
0: about it. Yeah, so there's I, I think the sky's a limit on creativity and how you kind of get in, get <laughs> oh, in people's yeah. heads, and sure, it has some effects there with the psychological operations. So I just wanted to ask about that. I thought it was interesting.
1: And don't forget they did reverse psyops in Vietnam War. We had Hanoi Hanna, who came up on the radio, and there were times when she came up, and specifically said, "Recon team Anaconda, you're going into this target tomorrow. Your team leader is Joe Bip and Harry." And we're waiting for you. When you come, you're going to die. Now, that's the PSYOPs that they had. And, you know, we had been also compromised, which we never realized how severely we have been compromised. But we had a team consisting of North Vietnamese soldiers that came to our side. They were called Chu Hoys, which is surrender. And we had an American, Pat Eddington, Sergeant Pat Eddington, who was Asian in appearance, but his heart was all American. He ran that team. They could walk up and down the trails because the NVA – knew the codes, they could talk to talk. On one mission, their mission was to get in to an NVA POW camp where they had American cell So Pat gets Cecil in insertion. He's moving through the jungle to the POW camp. And on FM, his Fox mike, the Prick 25, in clear English, the guy says, I am the commander of the POW camp where you're marching toward. You've got a choice. You can turn around and go home. Or you can continue with your mission. And by the time you get to our camp, I will kill every American who's here. And you'll just have to take home the dead bodies. So Pat turned around and left, got an exfil. But that's how we could be compromised that way. And we had other times when the NVA would come up on our radio. And of course, there are times when we'd be directing airstrikes and they would interfere with it. So we couldn't talk. We had kept doing the rotation on our FM. And sometimes we get so bad we had to go to the ERC-10 to be able to talk directly to the Air Force guys and, and to Covey.
0: ERC-10, the emergency radios, Correct. right? Correct, Ultra high frequency. And Covey, as you mentioned in the book, uh, is— Our 40-air controller. The, that's riding up in the—it was a Green Beret, right? That was riding in the Yeah, the, the unique plane. thing
1: about that was we had—so the pilot would be Air Force, and then we had a Green Beret who was a Covey rider, and they would have experience on the ground, and then as such— they could talk to the Green Beret on the ground. So much easier combo. He could understand, make recommendations, look for LZs, get into the mindset of the team on the ground. Right, And there are cases where like people like John Plaster, there's books where there's a story about John as a cubby rider. The American that comes up is excited and he's talking too fast. And John just calmed him down, said, look, if you don't slow down, you're going to die. Right. Now talk to me. Now settle the fuck down and talk to me. And he did.
0: So, some of the the stories in the in the book and and what you've been talking about are incredible. We had kind of talked about every mission was high risk, right? It's Correct. Every single mission that you did was high risk. So, you know, with with every mission being so high risk and kind of going out so often on these missions, can you talk about how you kind of coped with the str- like that stress that would come from that? You mentioned, you know, some of these things were were invigorating. Oh yeah, well, I You mean- talked about hey, this is invigorating, but. You also like think about your survival and like, man, am I going to survive this?
1: I think that more of it's like there's there's a, an adrenaline high that comes from from Mortal Kombat that is just unlike anything in the world. In our case, we played. We would have two hand touch football. We had poker. We had each other. We could talk to, and a lot of times everything was mission prep. You're getting ready for the next mission. How can we do it better? The guys who are on the teams would talk to each other. Eventually, they had recon schools where they would train up the guys, from one zero school. But in our case, it was get the job done, take pride in it. You're at that time, that was the premier operation in our government was putting out this mission as mm-hmm. deadly and as dangerous as it was. It had to be done, somebody had to do it, and it was our turn to step up to the plate. You don't really focus on that can be me because you're young and dumb. You no, know, It's going to be somebody else is going to get killed or severely wounded. I got hit with shrapnel several times, but nothing... Enough to get a Purple Heart. But compared to guys that lost legs and arms, that's, my stuff is minor. And you never really think about if I could die. And on Christmas Day, we had a mission where, again, the King B's pulled us out at the last minute. Literally, uh, we were on a little hilltop surrounded with the enemy, and it was too steep to go on the other side. And it was, the whole hill was on fire, burning, coming up at us. The King Bee came in, the prop was kept the fire back, we get on and leave, and the whole hill just got over, overrun with the flames. Had we stayed there a few more minutes, we would have all been literally cooked. We came back that night. I took a shower, and as we're walking back from the shower to our hooch, there's a little tinny transistor radio playing Silent Night. And right there, for that moment, I just stood there and go, holy shit, I've been in this secret war now for seven months. And at the time, I was 22, and I said, I don't think I'll, I don't know if I'm going to see my 23rd birthday or not, which was January the 19th. But if it's there, but it's like, well, you know, we got to go on. You just can't focus on that. So it went down. But there's that moment, you know, you do think about it occasionally, but you just can't let it dominate.
0: Now that you've had quite a length of time to kind of since leaving, how have you kind of processed it over time, your experiences?
1: In my case, I was very fortunate. Not only was I blessed with good team members, the best South Vietnamese there were, in my mind, and we were blessed with King B pilots and aviators who put their lives on the line to keep us alive when we're on the ground. The Green Berets that I served with, to this day, I compare every man to the Green Berets I served with. It was just an honor to be with such quality men, fearless. We had a mission and we all did the best we could at it. Mm. Some of us fell down, but everybody tried, you know? So i i used that as my standard of judgment and the transitions and coming back i had friends i had family obviously that prayed for us when we were there and went back to school and really focused on the new mission and of course when there, when the reduction of forces started that was just an ugly period of time all the armed services and i didn't want any part of that so i went back to school and had new missions which was okay let's get through school i worked on a school newspaper we put together a POW MIA Concern Center on campus where we worked with the National League of POW MIA Families to raise awareness about our POWs and the MIAs that were missing in action. This is, we're talking 71 through 73. The troops, their POWs came home in 73, but there's still the MIAs there. And so to this day, we still have 1,584 Americans in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War, Laos, Cambodia, North Vietnam, and maybe a couple in Thailand. And that includes 50 Green Berets and over 80 aviators who died supporting us. And that gnaws at you. But that's like, we tried to work to do what we could with our limited resources. So Mm -hmm. those were new missions that helped me to focus and get get off that, I wanna get back on the adrenaline high, you know? You know, once in a while, maybe go, be a nice snowstorm, you're going on 110 miles an hour just to watch the snow blow up behind your car. That's a little bit of a push, you know. <laughs> Not like uh, Mortal Kombat.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the you know the MIA's, and so you know never leave a fallen comrade. And obviously, there's a mantra in our community. But that you right. know, that, that really it's a whole other level when we're talking about that.
1: Yeah, Mortal there's an additional level here, which is like with Lynn Black and the other team members that had to leave people behind. It's like we got to protect those who are alive right now. And that's the next level. You don't want to leave anybody behind, even when a guy made a bad decision like the the team leader did with Lynn Black on October 5th. But you have to do the best you can. And then when it comes down to it, like Lynn's decision was, those of us that are alive, we have to survive today to come back and fight this war another day Mm -hmm. against great odds.
0: That's incredible. I want to ask... From your perspective, what is the legacy of SOG? You know, what does SOG mean to Green Berets now? And like, you know, what's the legacy that y'all leave? Well, behind? you know,
1: I've had the pleasure of doing some Jocko podcasts with Jocko Willink. And since then, I've met different operators from Power Rescue to SEALs, Force Recon, MARSOC, and Delta Force Men. And to the man, they all say what SOG did because of the odds we are up against, the risk factor, I mean, today, there's more risk aversion, which is built into the culture to keep people alive. But what we did, they tell me that they built on our shoulders off of that, because it was a level of combat, and the odds against us were literally us in the Air Force, or the Marine Corps gunships, or Army gunships, are literally stacking up dead bodies that come at us wave after wave. And most of them Said they've all had hairy missions, but they feel that the SOG missions were another level of sheer terror (laughs) and enemy forces that were out to kill us. So I like to quote them. To me, it's very reaffirming. If I'm standing there talking to a Delta Force guy who's been to Panama and every mission since, a lot we'll never hear about. Because the quiet professionals get the job done and come home and take pride in doing a good job. And that's the thing about Special Forces. We may never know about a lot of the really good missions. So there's a certain pride in that. And we share that camaraderie spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. And in our day, of course, we couldn't talk about it for 20 years. And then now the books are out. And there are some other excellent books, which you now you can't even find, like Running Recon by Frank Greco. John Plaster has done three books. He's and he's done some sniper books on top of it.
0: What do you want the Green Berets to know or remember? What do you tell them when you— you know, go to fifth group. You know, oh, special third forces group last association. Week. Yeah, you get yeah. some of the groups, and you talk to Green Berets. Maybe the newly graduated ones, or just guys and gals on ODAs right now. What do you, you know? What do you tell them? What do you want them to know?
1: Well, a lot of them, oh, everybody's so polite that they just want to know about some of our stories first. I'm always happy to talk about it, but I always tell them, "Hey, you guys have been in. Tell me about your missions." You know, if anything, others have said this: said we like to build on your shoulders. What Sog did we want to build. And I've talked to a couple of the Delta operators. One of our complete heroes was Eldon Bargewell, who he and I were E-4s together at Fubai. Eldon was a fearless recon man. He had a one mission where he was chasing NVA into a cave. He wanted a live POW, right? He gets shot in the chest. But fortunately, he had put on an NVA vest before. <laughs> he was taken home as a war souvenir, right? Well, that souvenir saved his ass. Mm-hmm. So he gets shot And he's lying down in this cave with the NVA, and he thought he was dead. Then he goes, wait a minute. If I'm thinking, therefore, I'm alive. (laughs) Well, he came back, and this was a mission where they had gotten a lot of uh, intel. His recon team went into a base camp that was occupied by stay-behind troops. And they took out maps, all kind of intel. And they had so much intel, the next day... Another SOG legend, Jerry Mad Dog Shriver, came in with his hatchet force. And they filled up two or three Chinooks with weapons, intel reports, maps, equipment that were there in that base camp. They ran them off. Well, in Eldon's case, he, he went back and talked to the I-Corps commander. And the next day, Eldon and a Frenchman, Doug Letourneau, went on R&R to Hawaii. And Eldon met his first son he never met him before. Mm. Elton's one of our heroes. He stayed in for 40 years, became a two-star, was in spec ops, was in Delta Force for I don't know how long, a long time. Both of his sons have served honorably the same way, followed in their dad's footsteps. They've just done great work. So for us, today's soldiers, the message is continue the mission. Do the best you can, never quit, and always treat everybody with respect because that's what we do. We learn how to work with the people to help them to help themselves. We're there because we know what freedom is. that We like to taste of freedom and help those countries that want to be free from totalitarian regimes of terror, whatever it is, so they can defend themselves. That's the goal. That's a great thing. And we work with the local people. It's just a phenomenal experience. In my case, I was just very fortunate. You know, with everything that came together, the people, the missions, and we had impacts.
0: That's to state it lightly. Indeed. Think. <laughs> well, sir, I think we'll end it there. I'm proud to sit here with you today and have a conversation about your experience.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And anytime I get a chance to talk about our stories, because they're not told in schools, that's the legacy.
0: Well, that's the end of my conversation with Tilt Meyer. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more about MACV SOG operations, check out Meyer's book, Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam. Be on the lookout for our next episode, which features author and filmmaker Sebastian Younger for an incredible conversation on what it means to be part of a tribe in today's world and why those going through hardship may actually be the most happy and free of us all.